0: Good morning, everybody. Uh, that was, uh, I represent, which will definitely be uh, the downer of the service, I think, after that amazing uh, kids putting everything together. They chose all of the songs, uh, all of the prayers. They put the, everything together with the help of our um, our staff. Um, can we just unabashedly? loud and in a raucous way, in the way that I might talk to the TV, can we just give it up for our uh, wonderful young adults and kids? Uh, this, is, this is sort of uh, not what I was planning to talk about today, but I think listening and being there with the our young people this morning, uh, this is a good thing for us to remember. The wolf also shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. The calf and the young lion and the fatling together and a little child will lead them. I have every part of my body desires someday to be the guy that goes out on his porch with his house coat on and just shouts at the world about how bad things are getting honestly, I think, I think we're going to be okay. I think we're going to be okay. So, um, the weather has been really great this week, and I think I want to start there. It's been really nice. Um, <laughs> and for those of you that have kids or loved ones in sports programs, it's been really nice to be outside in, in God's creation. Um, and uh, I actually think that's a great place to start because uh, this is that time of year I think when um, I think things start to get a little heavy for us. Uh, we're in the middle of school and we're in the middle of life and things are really busy and um, I came in this morning um, and prayed through the prayer requests that have been put up um, and I know our prayer team wheres Jerusha Emerson. yeah we have a wonderful prayer team led by Jerusha that prays for you all uh, and I wanted to start there today to say um, A lot of you are going through lots of heavy things, and we know that because we love and care about you as a staff and a leadership team. And we don't ever talk enough about just sort of the intimate things of being in a community like that. And so I wanted to stop for a minute today and say, I know a lot of you are dealing with stuff, and we love you and we pray for you, Um, and it's a heavy time. And in heavy times, we often have lots of questions and doubts about where is God and how is he talking to us? And what do I do with all these feelings of uncertainty? Um, And in some ways, that's what we want to talk a little bit about today because that is a feeling. um, Doubt can often be something that can be crippling for us in terms of our faith walks. Um, And what I want to talk about today is encouraging us to say that doubt is actually this really beautiful creative force that God has blessed us with. And new community wants to be a place where we tap into that energy Uh, and allow our questions and our concerns and our disagreements and all of those things to fuel us towards knowing God more. So I want to start there today. Um, I love serving at New Community, and because I love serving at New Community, it might not surprise you that I'm always interested in asking people why they like New Community. Uh, What brought you here? Um, And the answer I get more than any other answer is, New Community is a place where I can ask really hard questions. Um, And I like that. I like that answer. Um, And I think as a group of staff and elders, we want New Community to be a place where we can ask hard questions and enter into difficult discussions. Um, And we want to do that through something that we on on the leadership team call the way of peace. And it's a phrase that we remind each other of, which is to say, the one thing that we're called to be as a community is different to the rest of the world. And one of the ways that we can be different to the rest of the world is to live in peace with each other. And peace doesn't mean that we all agree on everything or that we all have the same questions. Rather, peace is a way of being in the world that says, I am not afraid of who you are and you are not afraid of who I am. And in that space, we can love and get to know each other better. Um, And so that's one of the things that we want to cultivate. So our series in October... Um, is really about what are the core values of our community and at the center of all that is this idea that we are better together. And so today I want to tell tell a little bit about our story um, about how is it that we engage each other together and how is it that we make sense of the statement. What I love about new community is that I love that we can ask hard questions. What does that mean? And I want to play the contrarian for a minute because I actually don't think the phrase, I love new community because I can ask questions, I don't actually think this is what any of us mean. I think what we mean when we say that is something like this I, John, love new community because it's a place where I get to be authentic which is to say a place where I can be overwhelmed and uncertain and curious and wrestling with what is often a crippling insecurity about trying to understand what it means to follow Jesus in a world that seems bent on fear and division. See, it's not really asking questions that makes me love new community. If you know anything about me, those weird things would be bouncing around in my head regardless of whether or not I spoke them into the world. I think what I mean when I say I love new community because I can ask hard questions. I'm trying to get at this idea that new community is a place where my questions are valued, where my doubt is understood as a creative kind of energy that can be used to know God more and where disagreements are seen as opportunities to love each other. So that's what we're going to talk a little bit about today. If you could join me uh, in prayer. God, thank you for... Well, first, thank you for the young people that you have in our community. Thank you for how you are uh, working in their hearts, uh, helping them understand that they are beloved. Um, You are perfect in all of your ways, Lord, and we are one of those ways. And so I just thank you that our young people are learning that. For the rest of us in this room, I... I ask that you would be with us as we think through this idea of doubt, but I also want to exhort, uh, or, um, exhort us to say that we have a sacred trust, which is to make this the kind of place where our children can fully participate and sing to you and celebrate you and serve communion, that that is such a responsibility. And we feel honored and grateful that we get to uh, pursue you in that way. Be with us this morning as we try to think through what it means to be a community that lives in creative tension. Uh, Be with us in this time when things are heavy for some of us. Let us know that you are with us in every step of our journey. We love you, Lord, and say these things in your name. Amen. Uh, The thing I probably receive the most, I teach a little bit. Um, And the thing I probably get the most from my students are apologies. And it goes something like this oh, I'm totally sorry. I, I didn't understand what this reading was. Like, oh, I'm totally, I, I'm going to turn in my paper, but it's really not very good, I'm so sorry. I just, I, I don't know what I was doing. Um, I, I, I just, I'm really sorry because I don't understand what's going on here. And, and what I've always thought was really interesting about these statements is that they are typically coming from folks that are learning something for the first time. And so it makes sense to me that they don't have a whole lot of uh, reference points for what they're learning. Uh, that I don't expect them to be comfortable with these ideas necessarily because they haven't seen them before. Um, But what I've I've grown to notice and understand it, which I I find to be a bit disconcerting, is that it seems that the way that we grow up in our culture, uh, we come to understand that learning is a way of correcting a wrong, right? We grow up learning uh, this idea that if I need to learn something, then there's this underlying assumption that's like, it's just floating around underneath there, which is you have to learn things because you don't know something, and because you don't know something, you've done something wrong. Um, and so we often apologize for those things. And I, and I think about that a lot because, I wonder, you know, if learning is only necessary because we have to fix the wrong of not knowing. Um, and then doubts and questions become really powerful for us because they somehow mark this, this sort of uh, failure or inadequacy that we have, right? That, oh, I didn't, I don't, I'm sorry, I didn't understand that or I don't know that. Um, and if we think of not knowing something as being a failure or an inadequacy, then there's not a lot of room for curiosity, right? Just the wonder of looking out at creation and saying, oh, all I want to do is know more as an act of praise and celebration. And so then thinking about that in the context of what we've been talking about, you know, a few weeks ago, Russ talked about this idea that we often enter into transactional and not transformative experiences with God. And if we see learning as only ever righting or wrong, uh, then that's really transactional. It's not very transformative, right? It's just, hey, can I get this thing so that I can get the right answer? And so I think when people say, I love new community because I can ask hard questions, I think... Maybe, maybe this is a place where we uh, can start to think through those insecurities. Maybe it means I love New Community because I don't have to feel insecure about having questions. Um, Or maybe it means I love New Community because this is a place where we understand that life is complicated and sometimes I don't always have the answers right at my fingertips. Or maybe I love new New Community because it's a place where my curiosity is celebrated because it signals a desire to know God more. Maybe these are some of the things we mean when we say, I love new community because I can ask questions. Of course, learning to feel comfortable about our questions is a community effort. Uh, We need others with whom we can partner, others that help us see that learning is not a failure, but rather an invitation to pursue a closer relationship with Jesus. We do not see the world perfectly, and that's okay. That's okay. That's why we need confidants and wise mentors and dear friends. A group of college students once asked uh, N.T. Wright, what do we do about doubt? Um, And I love the answer that he gave. He said, some people have been taught a form of Christianity, which is almost a form of sight. We just know this, and we go out and do it. Then we find out that the world is much more mysterious than that, and they perceive what they are feeling as doubt when it simply may be a chastened faith. This is why one needs friends and pastors, because it's more complicated than one might imagine. It can be complicated to follow Jesus in our world. And we need others who can encourage and exhort and challenge and to remind us that our questions and our doubts are really invitations to grow. Um, These sorts of dynamics do not develop on their own, however, and that's sort of what this series is about. This is a deliberate practice of ours as a community, is to encourage the idea that your questions are beautiful and have the potential to lead you to know God more. And so we work really hard at this, and we work really hard at this because our culture, both inside and outside of the church, um, wants us to see uncertainty as evidence of failure. That differences of opinion are immovable objects that stand in the way of relationships. We live in a world that wants us to be afraid whenever we feel uncertain. And so it makes sense then, I think, that communities are often horrified by the idea that there might be disagreement. And we're horrified because if we don't know that something is right, then disagreements are just further evidence that other people must also be wrong. And so we're all sitting around not knowing what it is that we're doing. And disagreements are funny that way. They often corner us into being prideful and certain on our own. Maybe our ideas um, about a particular issue, we don't really understand, we don't really think about, we're not sure what we think. But as soon as we put those ideas up next to somebody else, all of a sudden, what was once fuzzy and doubt-filled becomes really clear and precise. On my own, I'm not always sure what I think, but when compared to you, I'm positive that one of us is wrong. Ideas are a little bit like beta fish. When left to their own, they flop around all fringy and fluid. But you set another beta fish next to them, and all they want to do is bite each other's fins off. <laughs> I got that into a sermon. Um, <laughs> um, I got it. Um, So how do we cultivate a curiosity in our community that manages these resultant disagreements that are necessary? Disagreements are necessary. They're the byproduct of authentic people looking for authentic answers. And so how do we do that? Well, our goal at New Community is to be a place that cultivates what we like to call creative tension, this creative tension that encourages the way that we look at Scripture, the way that we look at the sacraments, the conversations we have around big questions, We want this to be a place where each person is able to chase after God while also sustaining a community in which individual convictions enliven our collective energy to spread the good news of Jesus, right? We want this to be a place where you get to chase after God with your whole heart, and the energy that you spend chasing after God is combined with all of the other energy of everybody else chasing after God, and it creates this brilliant, brilliant light to the rest of the world. Utilizing creative tension, though, takes practice, or um, rather is a kind of practice. Uh, In Jesus's world, this was called the Midrash, and the Midrash uh, was a rabbinical practice that called communities to return over and over again to the scriptures when questions and disagreements arose. The guiding assumption of the Midrash was that Yahweh was always more than enough, and in fact, The scriptures came alive when we worked to understand Yahweh in the midst of new questions and new challenges, right? We often think that, well, what are we supposed to do about questions like technology? The Bible doesn't speak about that. Well, the Bible had been around for thousands of years when Jesus was reading the thing. There were things that they weren't that the Bible didn't speak to Jesus either, right? And yet they always return to the text to say that Yahweh always meets us in our pursuit of him. Um, the idea of Midrash is that we experience Yahweh through a constant reimagining and application of Scripture to the biggest questions we face in life. Midrash encouraged that disagreement should not be met with, let's agree to disagree, but rather let's see how our ideas fit together in order to to give us a fuller picture of who God is. I like the way that uh, Rachel Hald Evans defines this. She says, Midrash is a Jewish rabbinical interpretation of scripture. In the Jewish community, there is this appreciation for differences and contradictions and questions that are left in the text. If we encounter a difficult passage, it's like, oh, well, let's talk about this. The Bible is treated like a conversation starter and not a conversation ender. Midrash is a thoroughly Jewish practice. And I mention that because it's often at odds with our Western tradition and our notion of logic. From very beginning in school, we are taught that you think of terms of cause and effect, right? This happens then this happens. That we are taught to think in terms of first A and then B and then C um, and so on. The, the tradition that informed Jesus and his disciples was, is maybe better understood as recursive and expansive, which means You circle back around to things, and then you move forward, but you don't leave things behind, right? There is no cause and effect. There is only everything. (laughs) And so rather than trying to find a single conclusion, uh, uh, conclusion, the Midrash encouraged communities to say, yes, and, yes, and. That is, there is always more to the word of Yahweh that we can know God at even greater depths and either and, and his word can be even more important than we originally thought, that our questions and our doubts should not be squelched, but should be used to pave the way to our new understandings of who the Lord is and what his heart is like for his children. Literary scholar Susan Handelman writes this. She says, The infinity of meaning and plurality of interpretation are as much the cardinal virtues even divine imperatives for rabbinic thought, as they are the cardinal sins for Greek thought. The movement of rabbinic interpretation is not from one opposing sphere to another, from sensible to nonsensible, but rather from sense to sense of movement into the text and not out of it. Today we saw Midrash in our children. They are learning who God is And while we may in the West say they are here and we are here, Midrash reminds us, no, 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 no. Today they took us to a new place. They reminded some of us that we needed to remember what it was like the first time that you realized God was good in moving in your life. Midrash says, no, 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 go back. Now go forward. Go back. Now go forward and bring it all with you. Jesus is consistently engaging in this practice as a rabbi. Uh, He's always challenging his listeners to move into a deeper relationship with Yahweh through the Word. Jesus' practice of Midrash is uh, really clearly seen in the Sermon on the Mount. Here in Matthew's Gospel, Jesus gives this amazing teaching on the law and the commandments. And rather than simply reminding his listeners about the practices associated with the commandments, he wants his followers to understand something deeper about Yahweh's heart so that we can better conform our heart to God's. Jesus begins by telling the crowd this when he says, I did not come to abolish, abolish the law, but to f- fulfill it. And what he means by this, at least in one sense, is that he did not come to abolish the law, but to fill it, fulfill it by showing us that the law directs us to the heart of God. And if it's not doing that, then what is the point? So let's take a look at one of these amazing moments. This is in Matthew 5, 43 through 48. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes his son to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. So I want to notice a couple of things about this first part of the verse right off the bat. Um, Jesus starts by saying, you have heard it said. And the Midrash in practice was dependent upon communities that were intimately connected to Scripture and to the traditions of the community. In order to expand our ideas about God, we must be practicing spending time in the Scripture. And this is where I always wish that I wore glasses because I would do this. And then I would act like I lost my spot and say, uh, we must be practicing spending time in the scripture. Midrash depends upon the idea that you already have in your life a disciplined practice of saying, I will return again and again and again and again and again to the Lord and his word. The next thing I want to point out um, is that Jesus repeats this very common phrase that shows up in the Torah. He says, love your neighbor. Everybody gets that. It's in a lot of places. But here's what's interesting. The next phrase, he says, you have been told to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. You might be saying, hate your enemy? That seems very, very strong. Yes, also not in the Torah. So what Jesus is recognizing here is that the community of believers that he's talking about have been in this practice of doing things outside of the scripture already, right? That they're adding some things. Well, if you love your neighbor, then there must be people that aren't your neighbor. And so they spend all their time figuring out who that is. And Jesus says, you've heard, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And he says, well, all right, let's think about that. So Matthew's gospel continues. It says, if you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your own people, what are you doing more than others? Don't even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. See, instead of letting the community continue its practice of developing these nuanced arguments about who was and who was not our neighbor, Jesus asked them to consider the commandment from a completely different perspective. He says... How could someone not be your neighbor? Or maybe another way of saying this is, who would Yahweh exclude exactly? Or maybe another way of saying this would be, and who exactly would Yahweh not give an invitation to the table to? This principle, this idea that to know and to love God is to think about who your neighbor is. This midrishim or this idea, this principle is carried again in Matthew's gospel. In Matthew 9, 9, we read, as Jesus went from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. I got to pause for a second. I was going to say this, but I, I really want you to. Okay. Um, okay. So the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, right? Jesus tells this thing about who are you going to invite in? And and the tra- our tradition says that Matthew wrote the gospel, and so Matthew is this tax collector. And what I want us to understand is that this story apparently means a ton to Matthew because he remembers it twice. Right? He tells us about it in the Sermon on the Mount, and then he tells us about it again in this story. And I, I just can imagine that this this is the thing that like this what we're reading is the thing that saved Matthew. Right? I it's just it's testimony. This is testimony. Okay, I've got, I got, okay. I'll go back. I'm sorry. Um, I'm so excited about this. Okay. Okay. But you have to be in the scripture to see those things. <laughs> All right. So uh, uh, he tells the story. He says, Jesus, from, from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, he told him. And Matthew got up and followed him. And while Jesus was having dinner at Matthew's house, many tax collectors and sinners came and ate with him and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? Okay. I think there's a weird thing that we do when we imagine this verse, which is like the Pharisees are like, it's like a zoo and like the Pharisees are standing on the outside watching people eat dinner, right? No, they're sitting there eating dinner too, which that's why we don't like them so much. It's because they're sitting there leaning back eating dinner too and going like, why is this guy here? Not, not ever why am I here, but like, why is this guy here? Um, so they're eating dinner. And he says, why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing, and they also don't know how to whisper. Um, a real problem, real problem. On hearing this, Jesus said, it's not healthy. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. But go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have come to call the righteous. I've not come to call the righteous, but Sinners. As in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus reminds those listening that the full expression of Yahweh's love is not only in our um, adherence to systems and rules that determine who is worth uh, being invited to the table and who is not. Instead, a fuller expression of God's love is seen through our mercy and our grace, our invitation for all to fully participate in the table of fellowship. As Jesus reclines at the table with the tax collectors and the sinners and the teachers of the law, He does not offer a new set of rules or definitions. Rather, he piques their curiosity. He encourages them to think of questions. And this is the beautiful gift of Midrash. Many of us are like those gathered at the table with Jesus. We want very clear answers. We want to know who is invited and who is excluded. Who is my neighbor, who is my enemy. And since Jesus is a good and loving father, he does not answer such questions. And here's why, I think. See, when we ask who is my neighbor and who is my enemy, we are asking God to give us a list of characteristics and practices that would define each of these categories. Here's what a neighbor looks like. Here's what an enemy looks like. And that's all fine and good until this happens. A person you love starts to exhibit the characteristics of an enemy. Your daughters and your sons and your parents and your spouses start to act in ways that are on the list of who gets excluded. So then the question becomes, are you really going to uninvite them? Are you going to say they have no place? And many of us will try to do this mental gymnastics. Well, of course not. I would never. Everyone is invited, of course, because we can still love everyone. We just have to be cognizant of the things that are on the list. That's not the way the law works. It's about you. If you are given a law about who can come and who cannot come, then you sin by having those people at your table. See, this is the challenge of this. Jesus is a good and loving God, and he knows that you are going to break that commandment as soon as it happens to somebody you love. So rather than bind you to something that you cannot possibly stick to. I want you to think about the question differently. And so he asks us to live into this creative tension where he says, is it better to err on the side of welcome or to err on the side of exclusion is it better to love with abandon or is it better to love with conditions and the answer of course is yes sometimes no many of you hate that answer (laughs) and that's why we love Jesus right because he challenges us to think about these questions the answer of course to all of this is yes no sometimes. In other words, Jesus's practice of Midrash isn't a way to answer questions and doubts. It is a way of creating questions and doubts. And to be clear, Jesus is not asking you to doubt him. This is one of the things that we do too quickly. We say, oh, it's a gray area to you, not to an omnipotent God God that created everything. It's not gray to him. It's just gray to you. And he's okay with that. You are fearfully and wonderfully made. And he knows that with that deal comes that you don't know everything. Right? So he doesn't want us to doubt him. What he wants us to doubt is our own sense of certainty. Right? The notion that we have everything all figured out. Or the anxiety and insecurity that comes with believing we have to have everything all figured out. Jesus doesn't want us to stay uh put with the answers that we have he wants us to grow and to mature and i often think about my own walk with the lord and i think when i first started walking with the lord i had all kinds of questions all the time right and our kids are having questions all the time and people that come to know the lord and sit at the table for the first time they have all kinds of questions about who jesus is but as we get farther along in our walks what jesus encourages is to say you should come up with some of your own questions right do you have any questions do you have some thoughts? Who do you say I am?" He wants us to be the kind of people that in our maturity we are able to ask questions of who he is. Um, Anybody that's been in a really meaningful relationship knows that you don't know somebody and then just say, all right, let's keep it there, right? Those relationships that matter the most to us are the ones where we are always wanting to know the person more. What is your heart? What's deeper? What's underneath? Um, And this is what God calls us to. Uh, I like the way Rob Bell summarizes this when he's talking about Jesus as a rabbi. He says, rabbis had no interest in having the student simply spit back information just for information's sake. They wanted to know if the student understood if he had wrestled with it. What is more, Jesus, like all good rabbis, challenged his students because He believed that they were the kind of people that could go deeper, right? In John's gospel, he says, you did not choose me. I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit, and fruit that will last, right? This wonderful encouragement to the disciples of this uh, group of young people who would have been excluded from rabbinical training. He says to them, I chose you. Of course you can do this. I chose you. Of course you can do this. To participate in Midrash is to participate in the creative tension that inspires curiosity, that values questions, and calls us to experience the depth of God. Jesus, then, in this wonderful way, is both the one that inspires our questions and is the one at the center of all of the answers. But it takes a lot of work to foster creative tension within a community, in part because we live in a world that compels us to simplify, to avoid depth and complexity. It reduces us to numbers, to likes, to thumbs up, to tweets, ticks, swipes, bites. In other words, the world suggests that the best way to find clarity is simply to eliminate variables, excise discomfort, avoid questions, and stick to ready-made conclusions. To ignore nuance and beauty. The problem with seeking such certainty is that Our God is actually an awesome God, right? Let me say that again. The problem with wanting to find these really clear answers to everything is that God is who God says he is, which is awesome and big and still helping us see new things every day. And so while we may want clear answers, we may want to be cautious about our tendencies to place God in a box, regardless of how pretty or effective they seem to be. Moreover, I would, I would have us think about this. Is it possible that an infinite God with billions of children might be okay with their questions? Is it possible that since he is the one who created us and gives us our experiences, that he is able to deal with the questions those experiences bring? Is it possible that if God is the good, good father we sing about, then he'll put at least this core set of beliefs into his children that help direct us always back towards his heart? The creation in this sense is Yahweh's midrash. We are Jesus's midrash. Embodied in us are an infinite number of ideas, that find their singularity in the person of Jesus. Everything moves back to him and moves out because all of us move out. Together, engage, become. This is our core values, or an articulation of sort of our core values at New Community. We move in these ways in order to grow as people through our deepening relationships with each other, as we step into the deep mysteries of God, knowing that Jesus is our guide. And the only way we grow with others in the midst of these questions and disagreements, which are bound to arise, is to practice what we call the way of peace, to encourage each other by reminding our brothers and sisters that our good, good Father is at the center of all of our questions. We need not be afraid of questions, nor do we need to be afraid that our Father will forget to correct or redirect when necessary. New community, we are Midrash to the world. Every time we study scripture together, every time we listen to the dreams and diversions of our kids, every time we enter into disagreement with peace and grace, every time we help another person see that their questions and their doubts are a source of energy, every time we call our brother or sister to join us in prayer, every time we break bread with a stranger, every time we love with abandon, we challenge the principalities of this world that seek to divide us, that push us towards fear and try to convince us that we are alone. But We are not alone. Every time we worship together, we model for the world that there is another way. We pique the curiosity of the seeker, we share hope with the hopeless, we welcome the unwelcomed, and we show all that there is another way to live. We do not, friends, need to have all the answers. Jesus will take care of that. We are simply asked to carry out the task of inviting folks to the table and making sure that it is set. The truth of all of this, I think, is that when I say I love New Community because I can ask questions, uh, I think that's not enough. I think it's not enough because it's not only about my questions. I think what I mean to say is that I love New Community because all of our questions, all of our doubts, and all of our disagreements, remind us of Jesus' generous gift of creative tension. Such a community is only possible if we know that we are loved and, in return, love others. Every day, family, we have the opportunity to show the world another way to live. In a world filled with fear and division, we can model what it looks like to be brave again. Not because we are certain of what we know, but because we are certain that we are known. See, Jesus says, this is how I make all things new. Let us pray. Creator God, Known to us through your son Jesus, comforting us through the spirit in us, may you help us find the joy and hope in our questions and doubts. Help us to know that our uncertainty is not failure, but simply a recognition of our own humility and an acknowledgement that your ways are beyond our ways. Jesus, thank you for giving us the gift of creative tension. Thank you for the gift of community and thank you for continuing to show us that you always make things new. We love you. We worship you. We follow you. We say these things in our hope's name, Jesus Christ. Amen.